In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Happiest Man on Earth by Eddie Jeku. The Happiest Man on Earth, The Beautiful Life of an Auschwitz Survivor. Um, so uh, as you can imagine, the title and the description captured my attention. Looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The w- book of the week from last week that I'll discuss today is The Prisoner by Marcel Proust. Um, this is book five of seven of his work in search of lost time. I talked about the fourth one, I think it was last month. And um, as always, when I talk about a book of fiction, there will be some spoilers. But really, although I sometimes am curious to see what's going to happen next, of course, but um, this work is more about how he describes what's going on more than the incidents themselves. And you've heard me talk about the different volumes. He gets really in-depth in things in a way that I actually quite enjoy, not just what someone says, but why they said it and the way they said it and making connections between the ways that people describe things and how it might reflect who they are or who they want to be. Um, And so the same is true of this this book. The Prisoner, in this case, um, as the title of the book is uh, called, relates to... The author, who we in some ways assume is Marcel Proust himself, or is supposed to be like him, um, the author has this friend, he calls it at times, but really like a girlfriend, Albertine, who he has this very intense relationship with that has a lot of jealousy, and that's a huge theme in this book is, is jealousy and control. Um, but he has a very jealous relationship with her, in the previous book, Sodom and Gomorrah, he finds out that she may have, he's not sure, it's a lot of, he thinks, and he's trying to figure out what the truth is, but he wonders now that if she might have also um, sexual relationships with women. So it creates a new way for him to be jealous of her, not just of men, but now also of women. And so he spends a lot of time trying to make sure she is not in any situations where she could be with other people Uh, sexually and now it includes women so in this book right at the end of the last book he's asked her to come live with him in his apartment his family's apartment in Paris to in a way isolate her and so she's the prisoner in this home he's supervising her all the time he buys her lots of gifts fancy clothes and nice things um, but always is supervising him she goes out but he knows who she's uh, she he knows who she is with and gets reports and so she is this prisoner and so this theme of jealousy runs throughout the whole book where he is very jealous of her doesn't want her to be with anyone else but then he also talks a lot about not being very interested in her not loving her and so uh, there's a lot of this confusion you could say or it's irrational in a way but I think that's 
what I enjoy about the book because humans, we are often very irrational in a way that we might not think we would be. We take actions that we can't even possibly make sense of because he's so jealous of this girl and worried of losing her, but also talks about not really wanting to be with her so much as well. Um, or he often talks about how when someone is being good to you or close to you, you don't like them as much, but when you're afraid to lose them, you love them more. Something that I think has some truth, um, but it does seem to be the way he describes relationships almost all the time. Uh, and he talks about it not just in romantic relationships, but even in the ways he talks about experiencing things. For example, seeing a famous actress in one of the earlier books and how the anticipation of seeing her was so built up but when he finally saw her it was a letdown it couldn't match his idealization and so we see a lot of that or even when he is with Albertine in this book he's often thinking about other women that he could be with or these unknown women in this very abstract way and it's very much based on idealization and imagination and so I do feel from him and my own analysis would be as him being quite anxious, that it's a lot easier for him to experience things in his mind than to actually allow himself to experience them with the person or whatever the experience might be. And in our mind, we can make something whatever we want it to be in the safety of our imagination. And so I think that's true of everyone to a degree. We all do this in different ways, but it does seem to be at an extreme length with him where there's this constant sense of imagining something being so good but then once you possess it once you have it it not being so great even in this book he talks often about how because of his relationship with albertine or making sure she stays within his house and that she's not seeing anyone else that he can't go to venice and he wishes he can go to venice and so venice has the same feel it comes up so many times throughout the book that he wishes he was in venice or he thinks about being in Venice, but he's not. Um, but it does feel like this idealization that if he was there, it would be this remarkable, amazing experience, and he's missing out on it because of her. And then at the end of the book, though, well, I think it's actually on the last page, he does say how this could be just like this beach city Baalbek that he's been to, that he imagined it in a certain way, and he maybe had an okay experience there, but it wasn't this thing that was going to change his life completely or be this incredible experience. So that's a theme that I've noticed in all of uh, the volumes of the book that comes up a lot is that this something in your imagination feeling a certain way or we expect it to be a certain way but then when we actually experience it it doesn't match that expectation or we feel let down. And I think actually people bring this to their romantic relationships a lot because we think that they're supposed to be a certain way. We have this expectation of how it's, supposed to f how it's supposed to feel good all the time or feel incredible or it shouldn't make us upset or make us feel down. But that's not reality. So then when we're actually with someone, we think this must not be it because I should have this certain feeling all the time and I'm not feeling that. But that's really just something in our imagination. Um, coming back to the title of the book, The Prisoner. So we see how his jealousy leads to this strong urge to control the woman who he wants to have, Albertine. Um, I should note also that there are some people that because uh, most people assume Marcel Proust was homosexual, but at a time where it was not 
easy to be open about that, although many people might have known that a lot of what is going on in this book is related to relationships with men, but he has um, substituted a, a woman. So, for example, they say, well, Albertine could be Albert. And in a previous book, there's Gilbert, Gilbert with the E at the end, but it could be a Gilbert like a male. So could this be his life? And he's talking about his relationships, but they're actually with men rather than women, which also might lead to him having to um, hide them in certain ways. So uh, Albertine in this book, who he is obsessed with, but again, we don't feel like in love with, uh, he's trying to control her. Uh, this is something that we do in relationships when we're afraid to lose something. We try to control things, control the person, control what they can do, control that they can even leave us. Um, but unfortunately, what we seem to miss there is that if someone is forced to be with us or does not have a choice about staying with us, then we don't really have them or we don't have a relationship with them. We have, as is the title of this book, a prisoner. We can have someone there, but we won't feel love. We won't feel that we love them or they love us because if someone can't leave, if someone is forced to be with us, we don't get the feeling or we can never have that feeling that they actually do love us. So it, it could feel strange to think of it this way, but really in a genuine romantic relationship, really any relationship, but in the most intense ones, which are the romantic relationships, both people have to have the choice that they can leave, that they don't need the other person. And so this is why when you have a relationship based on whether it's control or dependency, there is a very low ceiling of how much love can be felt between two individuals. So if someone needs you, yes, you have this comfort of knowing that they can't leave you because they're dependent on you, but there is never going to be this sense of them choosing you and choosing to be with you, which is ultimately what's going to feel like love and give you that loving feeling. So we see him throughout the book just really challenged with all this and finding out different things, finding out lies that um, she has told him and now figuring out new things, but then trying to figure out how to reveal what he now knows to get more information out of her. And you do get the sense that he already knows, but he's almost looking for proof of that, to prove that um, he's right, that she is this girl who he shouldn't trust, who will do the wrong things or maybe deceiving him the whole time. And so that's a, a theme that, that goes throughout the book. Uh, for me, I always enjoy all of these books so far. This is the fifth one, and I do have this anticipation or excitement to get through the next two, there's uh, two volumes left. I'll probably space them out just because I know even discussing them on the show, it can make sense to put some books in between, but really uh, an incredibly fascinating uh, deep dive into social experiences, interactions, the ways we, we treat one another, love, relationships, jealousy, um, homosexual relationships. And of course, this novel was written over 100 years ago, so a very different but not so different way of um, people experiencing that. So I highly recommend it. It's definitely a slow burn in the sense that all the volumes put together, I think, are over 2,000 pages or so. Um, but going through it now, uh, it's been quite an experience, really. I, I highly recommend it. So if you're someone who enjoys fiction, I think this is a great work to undertake, seven books in total, 
but really quite quite incredible. So again, that was The Prisoner by Marcel Proust, volume five of In Search of Lost Time. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. So uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this will be the last show I'm doing in May. Um, you know, for me, I, I, there's so many of these things, these uh, some a day for something, a week for something, a month for something. So I miss most of them. And sometimes I see people post something about them, and I think that's good. Uh, when it comes to Mental Health Awareness Month, I'm glad we have it. And I also talk about this in other holidays or commemorations we have like this. But I also like for there to be a day where we, or a month or a time where we won't have Mental Health Awareness Month because it's so much a part of the way we think about things that we wouldn't have to have it in a separate way. Just like we don't have Physical Health Awareness Month because we just think of it as important. Um, I would hope we have that same type of a mindset when it comes to mental health. And for people, I think it seems like this um, separate thing or this extra thing, or even when people see how they spend their money when it comes to getting mental health services, it's often looked at as a luxury, as you know, for which I think is unfortunate. Of course, here in the United States, so much of health care in general is a luxury or difficult for people to afford. Um, but mental health can definitely be one that's like, well, uh, you know, if you, you have the means, you can get it. But if not, you don't. And mental health is so many things. I think usually when people hear mental health, they think, OK, well, it's about depression, anxiety and the different psychological, psychiatric disorders. And of course, it includes that. But mental health is something that every human being is dealing with, just like our physical health is something that all of us are dealing with. You catch a cold, you have, you know, different types of injuries, you have, you know, some allergies or whatever it might be. You have a variety of health experiences uh, that you have physically, and we also have them when it comes to our mental health. So mental health awareness isn't just for often it's like presented in a way of, well, let's be mindful of people who have mental health uh, issues that are significant or severe. And I think that's very important, especially when we see how we still have such a strong stigma attached to mental illness and to admit that and to share that with others. So I think that is a, a critical part of it to continue that process of reducing that stigma. But I also hope it's part of this mindset that mental health is something all of us have to think about. All of us have to be aware of and to be aware of the mental health of the people around us, the people that we care about, that it's not just this other thing. So as a therapist, I see this all the time of, of families, if they're coming into therapy, well, that's good. That's not even everyone who will come to therapy. But even still, within those families, a way of looking at mental health as something uh, the person is creating a problem or something extra or something that they're being difficult or they want attention a whole host of ways that we write off um, physical, uh, mental health as compared to physical health. I said physical health there because I was thinking of my own dissertation when I was in graduate school, and I looked at, the, uh, at Iranian immigrants and seeing that because we have a culture that is so um, against or puts a huge stigma when it comes to mental illness, mental health issues, and so because of that, we might hide them or not even acknowledge them to ourselves and instead experience physical symptoms. It was looking at do Iranian Americans who are 
more Iranian in their culture uh, do this more? Do they show more physical complaints because they are putting away or not trying to acknowledge their emotional issues and instead they become physical ones? Uh, and to tell you about my research, it was a really small sample size. So we couldn't really make any conclusions, but nonetheless, that was the theme. And so if we look at Iranian families, if you say you have a headache or you have a stomach ache, you get a lot of attention and people are going to come take care of you. But if you say you're feeling sad or you're feeling anxious, you're more likely going to get something that is blaming you for it or just snap out of it or why are you making a problem or I don't want to be around you. And so because of that, we can see why there will be a tendency to go towards the physical. If you express it physically, you get attention. If you express it mentally, emotionally, you won't. You could even get negative um, types of experiences or reactions from people. Uh, I, as I was doing the research, this is a while ago, but still the, the themes are there. I would read about how in Iranian families, culturally, at times people will be strongly encouraged to hide any mental health issues um, for themselves, but also for the family that, okay, well, well, if people find out that your sister was depressed, it might make it harder for you to get married. So we can't tell anyone that your sister is depressed because that could affect how we look and how our family looks and how people would want to uh, interact with us or to uh, mix our families together. And so I would see all these strong uh, tendencies towards hiding people's humanity, people experiencing what is a very real part of the human experience that we go through these types of emotional ups and downs, these experiences as part of being human. We all have them. So I, I really find it heartbreaking because I've seen the pain uh, that it causes when people feel they have to hide what they're going through. So if, if someone is depressed and they have to hide it, that itself creates a huge amount of a burden on them that now they have to pretend like they're okay. And because of that, they'll avoid getting better, avoid getting the support, even denying it to themselves. I actually, you know, to share personally, I feel that I went through that also at a much younger age. Um, I, I recognized as I got older that I was not doing okay, but I was showing that I was okay because I thought that was what should be expected of me or what people like, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, no one wants to be around someone who's sad or no one wants to be around someone who's complaining. So you shouldn't do those things. And so I think I'd internalized that and was not expressing it. And really it's, it can go so deep that it took t till I was much older to realize that I think I was depressed, whether I would have been diagnosed with it completely. That's one thing, but I definitely know I was very low and feeling down, but I think I was unaware of it myself, but it was showing up in other ways and challenges I was having, um, doing certain things and getting things done that I was not doing okay. But because I felt that I had to hide it for my own type of reasons, whatever they were at that time, I just was suffering or struggling and not facing what I was going through. And so I've seen this happening so, so often, even with clients who are in therapy um, with me as their therapist, feeling that they have to be okay for me, that they don't want to bring me down or make me upset, um, even apologizing when they're crying. We, you see this a lot that people apologize when they cry. It's one of the first things that people do. They start crying and they say, I'm sorry when 
and they start crying because there is a sense that I'm burdening you, I am upsetting you, I'm you know, unloading something on you that I, I shouldn't do. And so even in therapy, I get this sense that people feel bad about feeling sad, that it's going to affect me. Even they'll sometimes ask me, I hope I didn't make you really sad by what I shared, or I hope it's okay. Uh, you know, because when you're with someone, uh, even in therapy, where, of course, I'm maintaining a certain sense of composure and how I'm interacting with the individual, of course, I have an emotional reaction and they can see that. And part of empathy is showing some sense of, I feel you, I feel your pain, not that I'm going through it as much as you are, because I'd be minimizing or invalidating, or that I'm, it's making me feel too much, but I do feel something, right? If you told someone, oh, my, you know, my mother died, and they said, okay, I'm sorry to hear that, without any sense of a change in their tone or feeling, you would feel really uh, most likely unsupported and kind of confused, like, whoa, that was like no reaction at all. So when we empathize, we show something. And so clients can feel that, especially if they themselves are more sensitive and that's the kind of person that's going to pick up on it and be more uh, aware of how they affect other people. But nonetheless, I feel that they don't want me to be unhappy, that they don't want to hurt me in a way that is sweet. There's some, a kindness there. But it shows that even in their therapy, when they are paying me to emotionally support them, they still feel bad about possibly making me feel not okay emotionally because of what they're going through. So when I think of mental health and Mental Health Awareness Month, um, of course, it's a lot of things of let's make it easier for people to access mental health care. Let's reduce the stigma attached to mental illness. Let's make it much more okay for people to share what they are going through. We all go through something. Just like, again, we all have physical health issues that will affect us in different ways. We all have mental health issues that affect us in different ways. Some of them more chronic, some of them more temporary, but there's always going to be something. So we want to make it more okay. Um, But really a big part of it for me is related to that, for it to be okay to not be okay. Kind of a cliche statement but this sense of we allow each other to not be okay that okay i know when we say how are you doing to each other sometimes because of the context it might not make sense to get too deep into it it's more of a greeting but really to be able to share with one another when we're not okay that i'm you know i've been feeling really down or feeling worried about something or feeling sad Um, all these things will help us much more than feeling that we have to hide it from one another And I've seen so many people share that once one of them got vulnerable with the other person, it created a whole new level to their relationship, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, sharing that they were not okay. So paradoxically, as much as we think everyone wants us to be okay all the time, there's some truth to that. If you actually want to get close to someone, you have to show when you're not okay. That's the only way you get really close to someone and have the closest relationships. And if you reflect on that, you will probably realize that anyone that you consider someone very close to you, probably you and also them have shared some painful things with one another. Um, It could also be about each other, things you're going through together, but just of your own experiences. You've cried to one another, you've gone upset or vented to them, you've shared when you were not okay. There's rarely someone that you're going to feel very close to that you've never had that experience with 
can have a really nice, pleasant feeling with them, someone that you see in a, a, a casual, social way. You might have a very pleasant feeling, but not a very deep feeling. And so I hope we create more and more space for everyone to not be okay. Just like if someone has a cold, we don't expect them to hide that they have a cold. They might hide in the sense that they don't want to expose us to the cold. So we say that's understandable, but they can tell us they were sick. No problem with that. And so if someone is feeling really down or really worried or really sad about something, we hopefully will have that space to, to share that too. We don't need to hide it or pretend like it's not there because it's part of our, our human experience. So for me, that's what I think of when I uh, look at Mental Health Awareness Month. It's that more than anything, creating the space to not be okay, both within ourselves and with others, that we might need a break sometimes and we might need to uh, ask for help, all these kinds of things that we all should be afforded the luxury of doing, but sometimes we feel like, well, no, we have to show we're always okay because that's what it means to be good and strong and some other qualities we might put on that. I'm very happy to see the movement of people opening up about their mental health struggles. For example, uh, athletes sharing that they're going through something that either made them take some time off or they needed a break. Um, I know there's this kind of set mindset of, no, you always push through no matter what. And, you know, back in my day, we couldn't take a day off and we always had to keep going. Well, yeah, back in, um, you know, the day people would do lots of really bad things too, get do hurtful things, uh, commit suicide because they couldn't hold it in anymore. It, it doesn't mean it was the better way of doing things. So of course, hard work is, is wonderful. We need that hard work and that work ethic and pushing through the pain is really admirable. So it's not to say always take a break, but it's creating that space that we have to be able to recognize sometimes we do need some space to make sure we take care of ourselves. We are not robots who can just keep going um, no matter what. So Mental Health Awareness Month ends in a few days, but I hope that mindset of being more mentally aware of your mental health does not. And for all of us, the sense that we will give the space to one another to not be okay because that's really what it means to be human is to go through those ups and downs um, and to allow for ourselves the space to not be okay as well. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. You know, in this segment, I wanted to talk about uh, something. Well, I experienced it, pun intended, which you'll find out in a moment, uh, that I wanted to discuss, which is spending our, our money, and not just our money, but also our time, on experiences rather than on things, on objects, possessions. Um, like anything, it's not black or white, but there is research also looking at how when it comes to this money by happiness, I actually saw a recent study, I read a bit about it, but didn't go into details, but we do tend to see that after a certain point, it, it doesn't make us happier or much happier. But what we do with our, our money and our time can affect how we feel or how much we get from it. And so, of course, possessions can feel nice and people tend to uh, go towards those and want to get things that they think will make them feel good. But what you generally see is that after a while of having the thing, you kind of get used to it and you um, it doesn't feel that significant anymore. But when we have experiences that we really value, those tend to stay with us much more and have a much deeper impact. And so I had some recent experiences that I had, and I remember even thinking about, well, is it worth 
the the financial aspect of it and now in hindsight i feel that it was well worth it um you know i went to a few soccer matches and it was incredible the the experience was so uh, special and every time i think about it i get happy again thinking about these experiences and that's what we find when it comes to experiences versus objects is that the objects lose value over time the experience even though of course the experience ends we still can bask in that good feeling about it so actually i feel like a possession that can be very valuable is some object that is a reminder of an experience you had and so i have a few for for these matches and so every time i look at them i, I get happy again because i think of that experience and and what it was like and the the memories and and all of that makes it so valuable and the value it keeps on giving every time i think of it i get happier if i look back at pictures or videos related to it it makes me happy in a way that um, an object would not and so for me it was such a reminder of that value of experiences and remembering that i was not sure if i would do it or not i was really on the fence about it and so i'm so glad i went forward and did that and so i'm encouraging any of you listening to keep that in mind as well because we often have these things and i have mixed feelings about a bucket list like things you want to do before you die but you know i think it could be nice to have things you'd like to experience um it's actually interesting i'm just thinking of how when I was discussing the book, uh, The Prisoner by Marcel Proust, I was talking about his idealization of certain things like going to Venice and how that's, um, you know, that's something he would experience that'd be amazing. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll think about that as I'm discussing it here as well and how that might play into it. Um, but we have these things we might create in our mind of what we want to experience and we can't know for sure is it going to live up to this high expectation we might create. But what I do find is that people myself included will often have these things we'd like to do and we think well sometime someday you know i'd like to oh, i'd love to go to this city i've always dreamed of going to the city but someday and there's this way that there's two things at play here one is this mindset that we have avoiding our own death or the death anxiety that makes us feel that we always will have more time that there will always be years and years and years to do this thing and so that's why I've mentioned death often on the show, because I think it's important to recognize that our time is finite, that there isn't necessarily a guarantee that there will always be a future time to do the thing that you're thinking about. So one, one important part is this sense of, I will always have more time. And that gets us in a lot of trouble because we think we'll always have a time to do it. And that relates to the second one, which is, there'll be a time where this thing's going to feel really easy or almost fall into my lap. Like you want to go to the, some city and somehow someone's going to send you, um, you know, uh, a flight ticket to that city. And it's, that's not going to happen. You have to make it happen. And so we see this with a lot of these things that we put off, whether it's, as I'm talking about, going to some city or doing some kind of a uh, new creative pursuit or professional pursuit, relationship pursuit, that we always think there will be a time where it's going to feel easy or a time where uh, I'm going to just slide right into doing the thing without thinking about it, when really that's not the case. When we are doing something that's new or out of our comfort zone, it's always going to feel out of your comfort zone. 
that's not going to change. It's not going to be a day where it's going to feel easy. And so what that leads to people doing, if you hear their thought process, is often they'll say, it doesn't feel like the right time. So they'll say, yeah, I want to go on this trip, oh, but it doesn't feel like a right time. I have to, you know, this is going on and that's going on and I have this on my mind. So it's not the right time. Or I want to, you know, um, start some new job, oh, but it's not the right time. This is happening. That's happening. Let me wait for things to slow down. That's actually a very common phrase that people say. I want to wait till things slow down and then I'm going to take some big risk not realizing that life can always feel that way, that there's things going on, that there's things that you have to take care of, there's things that are coming up. And because of that, um, we don't go forward because we feel like we're not quite ready. But we have to realize that you likely will never feel ready to take those steps. You know, going on the very other extreme of this, people trying to get out of a relationship, breaking up, they also might have this same sense of it's not the right time. And I've seen it so much with couples I've worked with, but also individuals in therapy who are in a relationship where they've gotten to the point where they realize the relationship is not right, it's not working, and that it probably should end. But it always feels like the wrong time to break up. It always feels like, oh, it doesn't quite feel right. And that's because it always does feel bad and wrong when you're breaking up. Even if the decision to end the relationship is right and you feel very confident about that, it's always going to feel painful and uncomfortable to actually end the relationship. And that's where people find themselves having a hard time going forward is it doesn't feel right and it's, it's not going to feel right to do that. I've sometimes joke with clients saying, you know, there's no national breakup day where this is the right day to break up and it feels really good to break up. It's always going to feel painful. It's always going to feel bad. And as a result, people keep putting it off. You know, there's always as well, you know, her birthday's coming up this time. Oh, we planned this trip for two months and it's so-and-so's wedding is in three months. So maybe after that, and there's always things again coming up. So it doesn't feel like the right time. And so we have to always remember that it always will feel like the wrong time to do something that's uncomfortable because it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And that's why it's going to feel wrong. So even with these things that I'm talking about that might feel good once we do them, have that experience, we can have the same feeling of uneasiness that it's breaking out of our comfort zone. And because of that, it won't feel like the right time. Uh, it doesn't feel like the right time to take time off and, and do something, you know, that I wanted to do. And I do want to make it clear that there are constraints that we have in our life. So I'm not saying no matter what's going on in your life, you can always do anything. Of course, that's not going to be the case. But we do tend to limit the possibilities we have by talking ourselves out of what might be possible for us, that we can do something about it or make some change or have some experience and we assume that we can or we tell ourselves that we can't. I just heard so many people talk themselves out of it that I'm always encouraging people that, okay, maybe can this experience be possible for you? Can you make this change? Change will always feel uncomfortable even if it's a good change or a change that we know is good for us. The anxieties come in and get in the way of that. So it doesn't have to be a bucket list and they don't have to be big things like you have to go climb Mount Everest it could be 
climbing Mount Everest, but it doesn't have to be. It can be smaller experiences, something even in your own city that you haven't seen, that even it's free to see, but you go look at or experience, or some type of very new experience that you have never had that you want to give to yourself. It might not even cost a thing, but allow yourself to experience. Okay, I want to write a poem. I've never written a poem before. Give yourself that experience, or I want to go on a walk here and I've never gone there. Those types of things. It doesn't have to be something that costs money even. That can be part of it, but it doesn't have to be. But I encourage everyone to think about those types of things that they have an experience that they might want to experience. And another element of this, so there's these bigger things that maybe you've thought about to go to some city or country or have this experience. But as much as we might think we know ourselves and we know what we like and we don't like, we can't know until we experience certain things what we will like and we won't like. So if you have never heard of some dish, a kind of food, and someone brings it for you and you like it, you say, oh, I like this food. But you didn't even know it existed to know if you would like it or not until you actually experienced it. So what I find is that we get comfortable with ourselves in a way that we think, okay, I know myself, this is what I like, and I don't like those things, or I don't like anything else. But often this is also a sense of comfort that we want to have to not shake things up and try something new. So people can be reluctant to try something new because they think they already know themselves when we won't really know until we actually give ourselves that experience to see what it's like. You know, so, oh, I'm not the kind of person that likes, you know, art, or I'm not the kind of person that does this. But often it's that we want to feel that we know ourselves in a way that feels comfortable rather than get uncomfortable. So uh, I find the same thing in romantic relationships where we try to make our partner something that we completely know because it gives us a sense of control and predictability and safety that we take away the possibility that there's more to them than we have seen. But we all do also do the same thing with ourselves, that there might be more to us than we haven't yet seen unless we give ourselves those experiences. So all of this to say, because I know our tendency for most of us is to not put ourselves in the situation where we experience new things, to always have these imaginations of dreams we can have, but never turn into reality, to really think about how can you make those things actually happen, not just wait one day. And I've seen it in myself so many times, and I still have many things like that. So as I'm talking to you very often, I'm very much talking to myself as well, encouraging you, but also encouraging myself to keep this mindset and keep this awareness that our tendency is to go back into the routine, to go back into the sense of, oh, I can never do this, or maybe one day, but that day is not here, um, rather than realizing we have to make the day arrive. We have to go just do the thing. It's always going to feel a little bit um, unclear, unsure, even in the experience I was talking about going to these uh, matches, there's a lot of uncertainty that made me anxious of, can I make it happen? Will it work out? You know, how are things going to go? And I think fortunately, lots of things went really well. They won't always go well, but it was a reminder for me of things tend to work out or you find a way. You can think of many things to worry about and many things that can go wrong, but you'll find a way. And even if they don't go quite perfectly, we want to lose that idealization, it can still be a wonderful experience. It won't be necessarily exactly what you imagine, but it'll be what it is. And that experience is something that's worth having itself. So make a list for yourself, 
Think of some things you can do. Don't put the time for another time. There will never feel like the perfect time or the right time. You have to make it the right time and just do it. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, I talked about Mental Health Awareness Month uh, earlier and wanted to talk about one one aspect of uh, mental health, which is going to therapy. But it isn't the only way. So as you know, we focus so much on that. I myself, as a psychologist who practice therapy, I'm a big advocate for it, but I don't think it's the, the only way or the only thing uh, we can do. And so um, as I was talking about mental health and physical health and making the comparisons, one big way that we can make that comparison is just like how our physical health isn't just about taking medications or getting procedures done. It's also about how we take care of our physical health every day. What are you eating and how do you sleep and exercise and a whole bunch of things that we do to promote our physical health. It can be good to think of our mental health in the same way. How am I taking care of myself when it comes to my emotions um, and my mental health from meditation, yoga, to uh, sharing with friends, what are my coping mechanisms, what am I doing to take care of myself in a variety of ways. So um, when we think of mental health, often people go straight to medications and therapy, which is a huge part of it, but it's much, much more than that. We definitely want to think of how we're just taking care of ourselves every single day. Going back to what I was saying about it's okay to not be okay, it's also about checking in with how you're doing. Am I okay? How am I feeling? That itself is a big part of our mental health. Um, I also do want to point out this distinction that we make, and I've made several times in my discussions even today, of medical or physical health and mental health being these very separate things when they're not. They're not separate, or it's very hard to separate them. We might think depression is mental and, let's say, you know, cancer is medical or physical, but both of them include both mental and emotional aspects and physical aspects. If you have cancer, it's going to hugely impact you emotionally in a variety of ways. And if you have depression, there's physical manifestations of that as well, from your body slowing down to needing either or or getting more sleep or less sleep, eating more, eating less, affecting you physically in a variety of ways. So the ways we try to completely separate our um, physical and emotional and mental health is really more of a uh, fabrication or just an attempt to separate things more than is actually the reality because they're much more interwoven. Just like if you're feeling uh, anxious, you don't just have an emotional experience or even part of an emotional experience is the physical part of it, right? We know what it feels like when you're feeling anxious. You have this Uh, You know, you might feel a tightness in your chest. You might feel tingling in your fingers. I shared a few weeks ago how I was confused, or it turned out I was confused. I thought I was more stressed than I was, but it turns out my allergies was constricting my breathing a bit, and I was feeling uh, that. I was interpreting that difficulty in breathing from being anxious or stressed when it was more than likely caused by allergies that I had experienced being in Fresno for a few days. So um, we see this interplay between the physical and the mental, and we try to separate them, but really there should be this recognition of how they're just part of our human experience. They're not completely things we can tease apart and make so separate. 
every emotion is a physical experience as well. And it's partially how we interpret that that can even affect how we think we're feeling. So they've done research on um, people, one of the famous ones where they would have this female experimenter ask men questions on a bridge. And it was two different suspension bridges, I think, in Vancouver. One was really high and one was low. So the high one, we would imagine people crossing that bridge are going to have more of a physiological reaction going on, more anxiety, fear, excitement as they're crossing this bridge. And so the woman would ask them some questions, which actually was not really part of the experiment, um, but then would ask them um, if they'd like to have more information about the study, they can call her. And so she would give them um, her number, and then they'd see how many people called her. And they found that on the higher suspension bridge, which was uh, likely more scary and physiologically giving them more of a reaction, more of those men called. And so the interpretation of these results was that because of their, let's say their heart rate was higher, they were feeling more things physically when they were talking to her on the higher bridge, they interpreted that as I'm more attracted to this person and so they were more interested. So we can see how uh, our physical and emotional are so tied together in the way we interpret how we're feeling or what's going on is so much related to how much we can tease apart what's really going on with us. If you had this awareness, you might think, oh, you know, I'm um, more in a heightened state, so maybe that's why I'm feeling an attraction to this person. Uh, for example, myself and many coffee drinkers, you might realize that sometimes when you first wake up before you've had that cup of coffee, uh, things seem a bit more negative or you might be in a more negative mood. And I've really noticed that in myself that at times when um, I haven't had coffee yet and I wake up, I can sense that I'm more pessimistic about things. So if I think about something, I see it in a more negative way. So I've tried to be more mindful of this and not think too much about certain things or definitely not try to make conclusions based on that. Also might want to consider drinking less coffee, so I'm less dependent on it, but that'll be for a, another discussion. So our emotions and our physical or the mental and the physical are very intertwined and to just tease them apart um, does not make sense. And we even see this in how medical doctors, sometimes we might think, well, it's just about assessing the symptoms and giving a treatment, but we've seen how critical it is um, how the doctor interacts with the patient, what is sometimes referred to as bedside manner. And so it's not that the bedside manner is just this, oh, it's a nice thing or it's sweet that the doctor is being a little bit more caring or showing attention. It's actually leading to better health outcomes for individuals. So um, we could see that the physical and the emotional are not these separate things that should be treated separately. Really, we have to treat the whole person and be aware that these things are all interconnected. Um, but coming back to therapy, as I was saying, we can take care of our mental health in a lot of ways, but going to therapy can definitely be a big part of that. And therapy is sometimes included as one aspect of self-care. And I, I talked uh, about self-care in a book recently, which I thought did a good job of being more accurate about self-care, not just being, oh, you get a massage or you, uh, you know, go get a facial or you go away for three days. It can include those things, but it's much more a constant checking in and seeing what you need, taking care of yourself um, on a daily basis, not just doing these things that will make you feel good overall. Um, but when we think about self-care also in that same way, 
people, when they think therapy is self-care, they think, well, I'm going to therapy that should feel good. And so the analogy I use is sometimes the sense that self-care is like uh, therapy is like a massage. And I'm going to go there and just feel better after, you know, 50 minutes of, of talking to someone. Um, but to me, a better analogy for therapy and as self-care is that when you go to a, a personal trainer who is going to actually push you to feel some pain and some discomfort. They're not there just to make you feel good and feel comfortable and feel nice. It's going to feel a little bit painful. And really the only way you grow, the, the old adage of no pain, no gain, is it has to feel a bit uncomfortable. And of course, the trainer is going to be careful to make sure the pain you're feeling, and something I've described a lot, is not the pain that leads to damage, but the pain that leads to growth. So, okay, you're not putting too much pressure on your knees or you're not going to tear your muscles, but you're going to have some pain that leads to your growth and you're getting stronger. And so therapy has a similar type of experience where the therapist's job isn't just to make you feel comfortable every moment and make sure nothing is going to bother you, but in a way that you can handle to push you into uncomfortable emotional places so that you can grow through them, where that's how the healing is going to happen. And so I say this because people who are starting therapy, there is a sense, okay, I'm going somewhere, paying someone to emotionally make me feel better. And so with that expectation, some of that is true, but it could lead to this expectation that every session I should just feel really good and feel comfortable and feel nice. And that's not really what people always experience. There can be a very good feeling. Of course, you can feel wonderful and feel uh, understood and accepted and validated and just expressing things can be really good. So, of course, you do feel good a lot of the times, but you also will be talking about painful and uncomfortable memories and emotions and experiences. Or you might have to face some realities about yourself. You want your therapist to point out things that you might be doing. So often we blame others for what we're going through. And of course, others can do things that impact us, but we can often minimize our own choices and decisions and behaviors that are hurting us. Some people might go too far one way. Some might go too far the other way. And the therapist might help you recognize that, that it seems like you are taking on too much responsibility for what you're going through and blaming yourself. Or you could be putting it all on other people. And because of that, You don't see what you can do to make things different for yourself. This is actually a conversation I often do have with clients to get them to see that I'm not trying to blame them for what they're going through, but that if we only focus on what other people have done or bad luck or things that have happened to them, then we're making them completely powerless to make any changes. So if you haven't made any decisions that have impacted where you're at, what can you do to make things differently now? But if we recognize what you've done, and the patterns you have done, then you can make changes to those things and get different results. So the therapist is going to encourage you to push yourself out of your comfort zone, both in the sessions and outside of the sessions, because just talking isn't going to make the changes. You have to actually implement some of the changes, deal with the discomfort that happens in the outside world, and then you might come back and process them, and that will help you internalize them more deeply or learn the lessons you need to keep moving forward, but it will be uncomfortable. The only way we grow is by feeling uncomfortable. And the most simple or straightforward example of this is when we're dealing with fears or phobias. So if you have a 
fear of spiders. Um, I really wish there was a way you can get over that fear of spiders by just talking your way through it. Sometimes we do think if we find this memory, oh, okay, oh, we realize after hypnosis or realize after uh, many sessions that the reason why I have this fear of spiders is one time when I was four years old, the spider came into the room and my mom screamed and then I got freaked out. And because of that, I always have this phobia of spiders. And if we recognize that memory, it's just going to melt away. But that's not what we see. You might even realize that, that that's where the fear is coming from. But unfortunately, the only way you'll get over that fear is to face the thing that you are afraid of. You have to face it in a way that you can handle. So the therapist's role, again, is going to be to push you just like the trainer. They're not going to put a thousand pounds on your back and say, do this squat. They're going to see how much can you do and build up the weight to see what you can handle. But they have to keep building up to something that feels a bit uncomfortable. If it feels too easy, you're not going to grow. And so let's say with the fear of spiders, the, the type of treatment that often is done is something called systematic desensitization, which is where you're slowly getting exposed to more, to bigger threats when it comes to the fear, things that might scare you more, and feeling that you can handle them and then you can go to the next step. So for example, with the spider's fear, the first one might just be talking about spiders because some people have a really strong phobia, even just the topic is too much for them to handle. So then it might be to, to talk about a spider. Then you might move up to, okay, we're going to look at a picture of a spider, which for someone who has a, a phobia can be very difficult to do. And in all of that, keeping, uh, trying to keep a calm feeling, so you see I can handle this, and moving up to the point where actually often what people do is they'll do things like actually hold a spider in their hand, which for most people can feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable if you don't have a phobia, but they will be holding that spider and then it might not feel good or comfortable or easy, but the experience is that they'll see that they can handle it, that even though I'm doing this thing that feels very scary, though the sky didn't fall, nothing happened to me, I'm okay. So the only way we actually grow through that is to actually experience the thing that we, we fear. So overall, this is what the therapist is going to have you do, not just with phobias, but with other ways of uh, experiencing things that in relationships, okay, you tend to be a people pleaser. The only way we're going to undo that is not just by figuring out where it comes from. That's going to help. And the therapist can help you recognize possibly you were in a family where you were encouraged to make sure everyone else was okay. And you were discouraged when you had a problem to share that problem. So you've learned to make sure everyone else is okay. And now you continue that into your your friendships and your romantic relationships. And that can be very helpful to see where it's coming from and that it's not necessarily something you have to do anymore. It's something you've learned. But to change it, the only way it's going to happen is you have to take some risks where a people-pleasing tendency will come up for you automatically and you have to challenge that, not go ahead and do that thing that you want to do. So you want to apologize an extra time even though you're not really sorry and you have to stop yourself from doing that. And that's going to feel uncomfortable. So going to therapy, I think, is a wonderful thing. Uh, I go to therapy myself, and actually I always talk about this, uh, or I should say I always I bring it up often because I do want to encourage, going back to Mental Health Awareness Month, that it's okay and very good to go to therapy. It's not something um, we should be scared to share or embarrassed to share. I go to therapy, and I think it's very helpful for me. Uh, similar to how people don't tend to feel embarrassed to say they have a personal trainer and that is a good thing because we say oh good for you you're taking your your physical health and your uh strength 
very seriously. That's great. Similarly, if someone goes to therapy, I would hope the thought is, okay, you're taking that aspect of your mental health seriously good for you. And I'm happy that you're investing in yourself in that way. But again, just to reiterate this mindset that when you go to therapy, you have to be ready that it will be hard work. I don't say that to discourage people, but to just have a realistic expectation. Because very often, I don't remember the exact research numbers, but it's something like two sessions is the most common number that people go to therapy, not because they're cured after two sessions, don't have that expectation. Even I don't like that word cured for most mental health issues, but because people face that discomfort or what we also see is people will feel worse before they feel better. And they think, well, what's the point of this? If I went to therapy to feel good and I don't feel good right now, then it must not be working or I think I'm fine on my own. But if we realize that the process is that you're going to feel bad sometimes before you feel better, just like if you go work out and you're super sore the next day, that doesn't tell you it was bad. You're like, oh, this was actually a good workout. Um, I, I should keep doing this. You might have that same type of emotional soreness when you go to therapy where you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And because of that, you will feel uncomfortable and might even feel some pain in some ways as you're facing old memories, painful memories, facing maladaptive patterns, things that you've done that you regret, a whole host of things that aren't easy to face, but you'll need to face in order to grow. So therapy is part of your self-care, but it's just like going to a trainer where you're going to be pushing yourself and get pushed by the trainer. The therapist will push you out of your emotional comfort zone in order to allow you and to lead you to emotional growth. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, in discussing the book, The Prisoner by Marcel Proust, I discussed this theme of relationships, how uh, he, in, in all the books, has this theme of when people are close to you or you have them in the sense of in the relationship, you love them less, but then when they are away, you love them more. Or the threat of losing them makes you love them more. That it's it's like this almost a formula that the more you have someone, the less you love them, the more you feel like you can lose them or you're trying to pursue them. You like love them more. I don't know if I said that backwards. Or you love them less when you have them. Um, and I think there is some human tendency for that. I But I do think it's, it's limiting in that it doesn't... Uh, allow for the space of a, a genuine reciprocal type of relationship. So at least in these five books, I haven't felt the sense of a relationship being very reciprocal. There are times where someone feels very in love uh, or infatuated might be a better word, um, but that's usually when they're pursuing them or really want to have them. You, you don't get the sense, especially in Marcel, his own experiences. I haven't seen that yet where he really wanted someone and then when he was with them, felt good with them. Um, there's a lot of these times where he wanted them, and once he had them, they became less valuable. Even in friendships, you get that sense at times. And so it does lead to this uh, saying that you've heard many times, the grass is greener, or the grass isn't greener on the other side. This sense that when you're experiencing something, or we can imagine you're at your house and you can see the grass on the other side of the street, and it just seems greener, and you might like, oh, I wish I had that rather than what I have in front of me. And so usually when we talk about the grass isn't greener uh, on the other side, what we tend to mean is that it's not that good or it's not that beautiful. Um, it just seems that way from far away, which is 
uh, I think, a big part of it. The other part of it that I think we sometimes forget, which is tied into that first part, but is this sense that it's not just the grass seems greener on the other side, it's that you don't have to feel how prickly it is on the other side. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So when you see the grass from the other side, you just see how nice it is and you don't have to worry about feeling how uh, how it feels to touch it or also to maintain it. So it's not just that it's greener, it's that you don't have to take care of it either. And so what I see people experience in relationships is they're with someone and they're frustrated by some things or some things are bothering them and they oh, like they get annoyed or they think about leaving the relationship or ending the relationship or have a variety of things that might come up for them. And then they see someone on the outside and they think, oh, imagine being with that person and it just seems great. And they go, look at how this they are in this way and I feel attracted to them or it seems so easy or they let's say meet someone new and let's say this is before an affair starts and they have some you know connection with them and it just seems so great and they're like, oh, that was so fun or funny and we had such a great time together and they come back to their partner like oh look there's these parts of the relationship that are difficult I wish I was with that person on the outside but what they're missing is that if they're with that person on the outside, they would have their own set of problems with that person. But right now they don't have to face those things because it's just this thing in the outside world, this very abstract, distant type of an experience. And so people often mistake this with thinking that that relationship is better than the one they're actually in. And that's a theme that I felt in the book many times, a sense that he would be jealous of Albertine or afraid of losing her and then would have her and then when he would have her like oh because I'm with her think of all the the women the unknown partners that I can't have right now because of her so this thing he wanted then he had it and then now he has it it's like no but I don't want this I want something else which to me is a sense of it's more about this imagined relationship rather than actually experiencing it so when you're in a relationship, you've maybe if you've experienced this before, you can feel the sense that someone from the outside might have this temptation in the sense that it can seem easier. And that's because it is easier when there is no actual relationship to take care of and to maintain and see uh, what problems you will have. Um, I do like this description of relationships that says that whoever you pick to be in a relationship with, you're picking a set of problems. Meaning that, yes, there's, of course, the good qualities of that person that are attracting you to them, but that you have to be ready or accept that whoever you are with, you will have a certain set of problems with that person, because that's just how any two people will be when they're in a relationship. So you might be with one person and the two of you might fight about being on time or going certain places. And you might dream of being with someone else who you wouldn't have that issue with. So if you're the person who's, you know, always running late, you might think, oh, it'd be nice to be with someone who isn't such a stickler for the time. But then if you're with that person, you'll likely have some fights about something else or some disagreements about something else. So going back to expectations, I was even talking about expectations in therapy, expectations about experiences. We have to also really check our expectations when it comes to relationships. Um, I know there is this uh, saying, no expectations, N-O, don't have any expectations when it comes to relationships. And I understand the principle of that or the mindset of that. 
which comes from this sense that we tend to have too many expectations or people often have these unrealistic expectations of their partner that can get them in trouble. And I'm, I'm talking about that here too. That I think is good to, to think of that. But to go to this sense of no expectations to me is unrealistic and doesn't really make sense. You will have expectations just because as any human being, you're going to have them. For me, what's more important is not no expectations and O, but no expectations, K-N-O-W, or know your expectations. What are the things I expect or am expecting in my partner, in my relationship? And that's very important to be aware of because if you're not aware of those expectations, you can get yourself and your relationship into trouble. So if your expectation is that, oh, me and my partner are always going to be happy together, every day is going to be good, well, you're likely going to get disappointed and rather than realize this is just how a relationship goes, this is how life goes, you're going to think something is either wrong with your partner or your relationship and you might question it or question what's happening in that relationship. So it's very important to be mindful of our expectations when it comes to a relationship and not just think, well, I have no expecta- no expectations. I've heard this before and I always know that it's not true because of course you Uh, expect a certain level of commitment, a certain um, way of being treated, and a host of other things that are expectations you have from your partner and from your relationship. But it's more important for me to be aware of them, to know your expectations. And then sometimes you might even adjust them when you realize how unrealistic they might be or uh, that they are not something that you'll actually get from a genuine relationship. But also you might share them with your partners, things that you like or things that you appreciate or care for in a relationship. And that can be really valuable. So K-N-O-W, know your expectations and be aware of how they might impact you and your partner and your relationship. Because if we think of our love as something that is going to be a certain way every day, and it's not that, we think something is wrong with them or the relationship and that's when we start looking for someone else we think well maybe someone else is going to make me happy and if you then are with that person initially it will make you not have those problems but then sure enough the problems start to show up and you inevitably will have a new set of problems with them Uh, another aspect of this um, concept is recognizing that people's personalities or personality traits have two sides to them and so we often like about someone can later on be things that bother us about that same person. So I've worked with couples where they say, oh, when I met this, my my now husband or wife, they were so fun. There was something so exciting about them. And I loved that. And that attracted me to them. And so, you know, we had such a good time together and I felt that they would make our dates fun, even if it was something simple, but something about them made them feel very fun. This kind of like a spontaneous energy. And now they might complain about how the person doesn't take things seriously enough or that they are not stable enough and they're always trying to do something exciting. So we see that the thing that attracted them to their partner is now the same thing that actually makes them upset or frustrated with their partner. And so we have to be ready for this, that there really isn't a first a perfect person or a perfect personality. And there isn't really even a perfect personality trait because everything in excess or at the wrong times is not going to be good. So you might want a partner who's very flexible. That could sound nice, 
But sometimes if they're too flexible, there won't be anything sturdy to rely on or to expect from them, and that might not feel good. But if they're too rigid, that also can feel bad because they're not being flexible enough. So there isn't just this perfect way of being. Every quality or every characteristic is going to have good and bad sides to it or times where it's good and bad. And we have to understand that and expect that. So the fairy tales that we hear and we we are looking for that someone that completes me and always makes me feel good and knows exactly what I want and never lets me down and certain things that sound nice and maybe even say them to your partner at certain times because it might feel true to a strong degree, but in a genuine degree of all the time, it's not going to be true. You can't have another person that's always going to make you feel good. I mean, think about it. You don't even do that for yourself. Sometimes we frustrate ourselves or we get annoyed by something we did or disappointed by something we did ourselves. So how can we have that expectation on someone else to never let us down, never make us upset, never do something that we don't like, or to have no qualities that are going to sometimes bother us? We have to just be ready for that. And so I, I could hear that what I'm saying might come off unromantic or like I am devaluing certain aspects of love or relationships, but actually I see it as the opposite. It's looking at the genuine value of what's there, assessing it in a accurate way of what to expect so that we don't actually throw away something that's quite good. It's just like if you have a car that sometimes has a certain issue, you don't just throw the car away. You say, okay, it has this this issue with it, or I wish it was more this way, or maybe this part of it could be a little different compared to other cars, but it doesn't mean you throw it out completely not to compare people to cars, but just to make the analogy of nothing is going to be perfect and we don't throw it out just because it doesn't meet some uh, perfect standard or every part of it isn't perfect. That's, that's not going to make sense. So what I think people often do, sadly, is they throw away very, very good loves and good relationships because they have this expectation of some kind of perfection. And that perfection takes away, as is often the case, perfection takes away the good. Something can be really good that we have right in front of us and we throw it away because of this myth of perfection that we are looking for or we think we're supposed to look for. So I, I love romantic movies and songs and poetry. I think it'd be really beautiful and capture something quite um, deep in what we experience. But I think what could be harmful is that sometimes we take those things literally. You complete me. You fill me up with joy every moment. You make me feel this way. And it's not going to ever be that way all the time. So the grass isn't greener on the other side. And also the grass isn't easier to take care of or have less problems than the grass that is right in front of you. Look at what you have and value it and make sure you're having realistic expectations for your partner and your relationship so you don't throw away something that's quite good. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. For the last segment, I wanted to carry uh, the discussion from the last segment related to the grass not being greener and not just that, that we don't have to worry about taking care of it or feeling how prickly it is, feeling the problems. Um, and related to that relationship goals, something that you hear people talk about or especially you'll see people post on social media and 
I saw a, a cute one today of this older couple at a concert, and they really they looked cute. It did look like quote unquote relationship goals. But overall, I have a problem with this um, mindset because I think we always cared about how our relationships look to other people, but I think social media has exaggerated that, where people are even more preoccupied with how does their relationship look as opposed to how their relationship feels to them or how it is for them. So well, relationship goals, of course, it's a hashtag or it's something you might see in posts, but a real relationship goal is not something that can be captured in a picture or in a short video. Something might look really cute or sweet or romantic. That's true, but genuine goals of a relationship can be shown in these types of pictures or videos or something that looks cute is not actually what we want to be striving for. Genuine relationship goals are felt by the individuals in the relationship. So uh, a good relationship is not measured by how it looks to people on the outside, but how it feels to the per people who are inside that relationship. And no one else can know what that is like except for them. They are the ones that are feeling it. And so this shows up in a variety of ways, going from just how people judge other people's relationships. I've seen it so many times where a couple breaks up or is getting divorced and people might think, oh my God, she's so stupid or he's so stupid. How could you not want to be with that person? Um, when we have no idea what it's like to be in a relationship with that other person, they might look good or have money or fame or whatever it is that is making you think they're stupid to break up with that person. But we don't know how that person is treating them how they are feeling in that relationship. And on top of that, even how good of a match they are. It's not just about how the person looks on paper when we're talking about a relationship. It's about what kind of a match the two individuals are. And I know that's one of those generic things that people throw out there when they're trying to break up or if they just date someone once and they, they don't think they want to continue, they say, oh, I don't think we're a match, but it's something very genuine. Two people have to be a good match for each other, not just be good um, on paper. So the ways people judge other people's relationships is very much just based on how it looks to them, how cute they look together, how good looking the people are, how they present themselves. Um, but that has nothing to do with how the individuals are experiencing it themselves. So it's just something to be aware of because you hear it so often. People say, I can't believe they they broke up or they got divorced or related to that. People say, oh, they looked so cute together. I can't believe they, they broke up or they go to their, uh, you know, their Instagram. Like, look how happy they look. Well, people don't post pictures of themselves in the middle of a fight. They're posting a picture when they're feeling good or smiling in front of, you know, the Eiffel Tower. And so, yeah, of course, it's going to look good and happy. Then everything is okay. But doesn't mean actually they were feeling okay. So that's one thing when we're looking from the outside. But especially we want to be aware of this when it comes to the relationships we choose and the relationships we create. That, of course, physical attraction is definitely an important component of a romantic relationship. You need to have that. It has to be there. But sometimes because we get so focused on the that aspect of the relationship because of how it's going to look, we put too much of a priority on that. And it becomes too big of a thing we focus on picking our partners. And so I, I do think it does matter, but I often will tell people that if you focus on just picking a really attractive, physically attractive 
partner, you can end up with nice wedding photos, but not a nice marriage. It's not going to lead to a good marriage just if they look good. It might look good on the pictures and on the videos, but that's not what's going to be the measure of what makes you happy long term. So we want to be aware of that, that we might put an overemphasis on how things look to other people. Um, we often care more how they see our life than what we experience ourselves. But I would encourage us to move away from that, to focus on how do I feel with this person. And I also see this when people learn that their family member or friend is dating someone. Of course, we're going to notice how that new person looks. The physical appearance is the first thing you see. Um, but really, when I've had any of my loved ones, friends, they're dating someone, of course, I notice how the person looks. But the most important thing for me is how does that person make my loved one feel? And how do they feel when they're around this person? That matters more than, oh, they look good or they look good together. That could be nice, but it's very small compared to how do they feel with that person. That's what's going to matter to me much, much more. So when we think about relationship goals, it's something to be aware of. And really, this is something that social media in general, unfortunately, I think encourages is the more surface level things. So um, uh, this isn't just a, oh, social media is bad type of a commentary. But one aspect of social media that I think is very real is that because it's about pictures or short videos and short attention spans that we're trying to capture, it becomes much more about what's on the surface and how things look and how they appear and, and putting the right type of caption and, and just getting that nice soundbite or video that's a few seconds long that looks good to other people where that's not what life is about. That's not what's going to make you feel good long term. You can have the most beautiful picture of you and your partner with perfect lighting and perfect setting and everything looks great and you're both dressed amazing, but it doesn't mean you had even a good day together, even a good hour when you took that picture. How many times have we seen people, you know, frowning or not feeling good and then it comes time to take a picture and they put a big smile on and they, they, they you know, take that picture and then if you post it, it looks like, wow, they're having a great day. Look how happy they must be, but we have no idea what they were experiencing. So we want to make sure we're investing in the relationships or finding the people and then investing in our relationships in a way where we're focused much more on how it feels within the relationship as opposed to how it appears to people who are outside of the relationship. And so we have to be aware that social media might push us towards these surface types of things. How do I look? And how much attention is it getting? How many likes did it get? Yeah, if you post a very cute picture of you and your partner in a really cool landmark, it might get a lot of comments and likes and reposts or whatever it might be, and that feels cool, but what value does that have to how you and your partner feel or how you're experiencing that relationship? And so we have to be aware of this pull towards these things on the surface, but that genuine relationship goals are things that people can't see. People won't know how you feel. And also, you should think about your relationship in that way that most of the things that make it valuable, people will never see. I think sometimes people miss that. This is another thing that social media does where it's almost like if it didn't happen on Instagram, it's not real. So if you don't have a picture or video to show it, it's not real. And so on Valentine's Day, for example, people are posting what they got in a way because they almost have to prove that they had a romantic Valentine's Day or their partner loves them. But really what makes a relationship valuable is the things that are 
more intangible, almost invisible in some ways. Uh, John Gottman has done decades of research on relationships, and he finds that a few factors are really important when it comes to marriages being happy and successful. And one big one is these small things that people do every day for one another. Just uh, someone asks for their attention and they, they look with them. They say, oh, look at this thing in the newspaper and they read it together. Or they want some attention from their partner in a small way and their partner gives it to them. These are the things that make a relationship last, make a relationship close, make a relationship healthy. The big grand gestures, um, you know, the thousand roses and, you know, a big uh, expression of romantic love doesn't mean they're bad. But to me, those are like some kind of like a penthouse on the top of a building. It can be really nice and look good, but if there's no foundation under it, it just comes crashing down. But people often are looking for romance or they think romance is these big grand gestures and they miss that what's really romantic is someone who's consistently there for you. Someone who loves you and makes you feel good about yourself on a daily basis. Not someone who just plans some huge thing once a year or twice a year and looks really good in photos, that could be nice, but if there isn't something underneath it, it's going to feel very, very empty. So think about that when you think of the partner you choose and think about that when you think of the way you show your partner love, that it could be great to plan some nice big gestures, a surprise or something really romantic. I'm not discouraging that, but I'm strongly encouraging being aware of how much it's the little things that become the big things or that become the big thing of your relationship where you feel loved and taken care of by your partner and that almost all of those things will be seen by no one but yourself and felt by no one but yourself and your partner. And that's something that I would encourage all of us to be aware of. And also in how we look at other people's relationships that I don't know what it's like. Look how beautiful that you know romantic gesture was but I don't know how they treat one another. Not that I'm assuming it's bad, but knowing that it doesn't really impact that, that those things can be signs of an outward uh, experience or to look for other people, but not really for themselves. And often actually we do see people that are so focused on those outward things that can sometimes be to cover up that there's something missing on the inside, missing on the inside of the the relationship and missing on the inside of how they feel uh, in that relationship that they want to make sure it looks a certain way to others. So relationship goals, that's something you should strive for, but that's something that you and your partner can make together. Things that feel good to you, things that make you feel good in the relationships. And most people on social media will have no idea about what those things are and what those things look like. And we want to make sure when we're picking our partner, we pick someone who makes us feel good, not someone who we think makes us look good, to other people because in the long run that's the thing that's going to make you have a good experience in your relationship so often you see people that go for that thing on the surface whether it's money or fame or just the looks and they think that's going to make them happy and then we see they're unhappy and actually this is true even in our own lives if you go just for your own money or you go for your own fame we see that when people even achieve it or they attain it it doesn't make them happy In the short term, they might feel something and an excitement about that. But in the long term, they don't feel happy because those are not the things that are meaningful and make us feel fulfilled. 
And so if we do that personally or if we do that in our relationships, it's a recipe that even if you get it what seems like you get it right, you still will feel wrong. You still won't feel very good. So a lot of the talk today has been about looking at our relationships, looking at what we're looking for, looking at how we experience our relationships, what are our expectations, are we idealizing other people and idealizing relationships in a way that makes us not enjoy or fully appreciate what we have right in front of us? Are we focusing on how other people see our relationship, how other people see our partner more than how we actually feel and experience our partner ourselves? And if we focus on the wrong things, no matter what you do, you're not going to feel right. If you focus on just looking good, that'll only feel good for moments. Or you go back on Instagram and see the comments people are leaving, and that'll feel good like a drug momentarily, but won't leave you feeling fulfilled. So relationship goals are things that we experience just on the inside within the relationship, not things that people can see on the outside. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's show. Again, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, but I hope we'll keep that in mind for all the months, that it's not just about this month, but something that we always have to keep in mind to care about our loved ones and what they're going through emotionally, mentally, also to care about ourselves and what we're going through emotionally and mentally, to not neglect or forget that that's a huge aspect of what we experience every single day. And that taking care of our mental health, of course, can include therapy, and I always encourage people to go to therapy, but it also includes how we take care of our emotional health day to day and how we're checking in on our emotional health day to day. Am I okay? How am I doing? How am I feeling? And that it's okay to not be okay. Okay, big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi, Sanz and Degi Azadi.